I always told people in some ways I had the greatest job in North America if you were a sports fan. I don't think the nature of the sports fan, either in America or in the world, is much different now than it was 100 years ago. This is the Work in Sports Podcast. Here's VP of Content and Engage Learning at WorkinSports.com, Brian Clapp. Remember ESPN, the magazine? Next athlete, the body issue. For me, this was appointment reading. Maybe I'm a little different, but I grew up addicted to the sports magazine scene. Sports Illustrated, Sport Magazine, The Sporting News. Every year, my grandmother would get me a subscription to these magazines for Christmas. She didn't have to think about it. Just renew the subscription each year and I'd be happy as could be. SI covers adorned my walls growing up. In my mind's eye right now, I can still picture the SI cover with Bernie Kosar in his Browns jersey and mini fro with the headline banking on Bernie. I can see this clearly because it was the cover that grabbed your eye as you walked into my bedroom. I didn't particularly like the Browns or Bernie. It just so happened to be in your line of sight. So I I can picture it right now. Growing up, these magazines were all I read cover to cover. My mom tried to get me to read more novels, more classics, but I really loved the storytelling that came through on those pages. Frank DeFord, Lee Montville, Alexander Wolfe. Well, ESPN the magazine raised the bar. The pictures were better. The content was faster paced. The branding, the stats, the data visualizations, the storytelling. It was all awe-inspiring. I worked at a competing sports network and yet read ESPN the magazine for inspiration. Next athlete, the body issue like I was mentioning, but then there was Athlete X, the biz, two-way. It was amazing. But magazines... Well, they died. And it wasn't climate change that killed them. It was audience change. Too long didn't read became a thing. Everything we needed was on our phones. Information was right there all the time. September 2019, ESPN published their last magazine. They said in a statement that the demise was caused by the, quote, rapid evolution of consumer habits which makes it sound positive. Um, What it really means is people were no longer buying paper publications. Get this, December of 2018, so literally just nine months before shutting their doors, the Association of Magazine Media ranked ESPN the magazine number one in total audience, number one among magazines in web and mobile web audiences, and number one in video. And that still wasn't enough. It still didn't work. (sighs) Remember magazines? Those were great. Anyway, today's guest, Gary Belsky, worked at ESPN the magazine for almost 14 years, culminating in being editor-in-chief from 2007 to 2011. In fact, the body issue was one of his brain children. He's also written eight books, is an accomplished speaker, and is the chief content officer and president of Elland Road Partners. As former guest Joan Lynch told me, Gary Belsky is one of the smartest people I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with. And after my conversation with Gary, which you're about to hear, I completely concur. Here's Gary Belsky. Gary, so great to meet you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, great to meet you as well. So you have a little bit of pressure because you come in with one of the greatest recommendations ever. Our uh, mutual friend, Joan Lynch, said that you are one of the smartest people that she knows in the sports world and otherwise. So no pressure. I mean, we'll just jump into, my plan is just throw some questions at you and see where you take it. Does that work for you? 
Well, Joan said you were one of the world's great interviewers. So now we both, <laughs> so now we both know she's a liar. <laughs> yeah, she's a total liar. <laughs> I like the spirit of it, though. It put me in a good mood, that's for sure. Um, so let's get to know you a little bit first. Uh, UMSL for undergrad, University of Missouri-St. Louis, degree in political science and speech communication. Yeah, it was a double major. Double major, yep. Years as a reporter, 14 years as the editor-in-chief of ESPN The Magazine, New York Times bestselling author, I'm already in awe, president of Ellen Road uh, Media Consulting Firm. As you look back at all these steps throughout your career, what was the most fun you had? What was your favorite kind of moment? Um, I'm bound to correct you on one thing, which was I was with ESPN the magazine and ESPN Insider for 14 years, but I was only editor-in-chief for about four. I was part of the senior management team for a very long time. But um, God, there I were- love the facts. It's there were there were other people who were my straight. bosses who taught me how to be an editor in chief that I wouldn't yeah. want to uh, I wouldn't want to uh, forget about. Um, I respect that. I have to say, I've been super lucky in my career, maybe just because of brain chemistry or what I thought I would end up doing or didn't think I would end up doing. But all of my jobs have been super fun. Um, when I was at, especially when I was at Money Magazine, half my job essentially was to be on TV talking about money in a way that large audiences could understand. And so, you know, I wrote and reported half the time and the other half of the time I was a regular on CNN and a semi-regular on Good Morning America. And I would go on Oprah and hard copy and CBS This Morning and talk about money to, you know, to the general public. That was just super fun because I'd randomly be, the, the work itself was fun. It's fun to be interviewed by Charlie Gibson or yeah. Diane Sawyer or obviously Oprah, but it's also fun to randomly be, you know, going through your life and either having friends say, hey, I was in Zurich and I saw you on CNN International when I was lying <laughs> in bed or to be on the subway and have somebody go, aren't you the personal finance columnist on uh, your money on CNN? And I'd be yeah. like, well, you're spending too much time in front of a television, ma'am. But <laughs> So that was super fun. But I would have to say that the most fun I had in my career was working at ESPN. Um, you know, I always told people in some ways I had the greatest job in North America if you were a sports fan, right? Because mm -hmm. not only was I working at ESPN with all the power of those four letters, but I was also working at ESPN in New York. So the talent pool we had to choose from was extraordinary. As you know, ESPN is based in Bristol, Connecticut. And I, I visited there a lot for work. And there is a, uh, a tremendous amount of talent, obviously, at Bristol. ESPN does an amazing job. But they also can't necessarily draw from all the talent in sports media because some people don't want to live in rural Connecticut. Um, right. That's a some that's a somewhat of a controversial thing to say, but it's just a fact. Mm -hmm. um, oh yeah. But so I was at ESPN in New York, so I was surrounded. Um, I worked for, worked with, and supervised some of the most talented people in my career, all of whom were sports fans, not necessarily all of whom were traditional sports journalists. And we had the power of the brand, and we had a mission from. John Skipper, who started the magazine mm -hmm. and who later went on to become president of ESPN, our mission was to sort of be a bit of a guerrilla operation, not just create a successful magazine, but also try to do things that the hardworking, very talented folks in Bristol couldn't do necessarily because they, as creative as they are, there it's a factory up there. They really yeah. have to 
produce a tremendous amount of high quality content on TV, increasingly on digital channels, on multiple television channels, on ESPN.com. So while they were amazing for their creativity and for the quality of their work, they also didn't necessarily have the ability to experiment as much as we Mm -hmm. did at the magazine. And that just, so basically you have ESPN, an ESPN job with a little bit more flexibility and it was fantastic and just so much fun every day. Yeah. You know, a lot of the people I talked to in the media and myself coming up in the media, you know, you're either in that kind of churn and burn, you create something and then the next day is here and you create something new again and then you create something new again, or you have those that lean more towards the long form content, something that's evergreen, something that lasts a little bit longer. It seems like it's almost a decision making point for a lot of people in their careers too, is like, where do you, where do you fit in that realm where... I used to get so frustrated with creating something I was so proud of. And it was like within 24 hours, it was old news, you know? So uh, is that something yeah. that just you always gravitated towards? Was this concept of being able to really dig into a story and really get in deep with it? Well, I certainly was, um, I, I have at times, you know, reported hard news and been, you know, on deadline during, for a day or even within a day because of what was going on in the world. But I gravitated towards being a little bit having the time to be a little bit more thoughtful about whatever it is that I was working on, whether or not that was business news or personal finance or economics Mm -hmm. or sports, whatever the case may be. I have to say, by the way, that we don't want to give short shrift to the ability for people who are grinding it out to churning and burning to also come up with amazing franchises. Remember, it was was ESPN in Bristol that came up with 30 for 30, um, that came up with a lot of conceits that still drive the ESPN brand and in general change sports journalism. So, so they, they, they were, they were able to both grind it out and run a high speed sports content factory and also take the time periodically to create an E60 or to create um, a 30 for 30, things like that. Yeah, no, I love that. That's a great, that's a great point to remember. And we did, and we certainly did a lot of forgettable things at ESPN, the magazine, <laughs> as well as things that we're super proud of. Oh, yeah. No, we all do. We all have those moments as well. It's one thing, when you were at ESPN the magazine, one of the kind of cornerstone pieces of content that you you and your team came up with, it was 2009, was when the, you started the body issue. And it's kind of funny. I went back and looked at that first issue of the body issue. And it was the first time I had thought of Jabba Chamberlain in a long time, which was kind of funny. You know, you look through these pages, and you're like, oh, yeah, 2009. Wow, that was a long time ago. Um, I wonder, I kind of sat back thinking, it's become its own brand. It's something that's become very successful. In today's kind of vibe, society, societally, um, if you pitch an idea like that today, do you think it would get made? Um, I didn't think it would get made when I pitched it uh, uh, <laughs> 12, 12 years ago. And by the way, I don't know whether or not they're going to continue doing it. I mean, things have been, you know, they had a 10-year anniversary about a year and a half ago, and then the pandemic hit. So I have no idea whether or not ESPN is going to continue the franchise. I don't know. I think um, ESPN, it was a pretty, it was a pretty out there idea back then. Um, and I've told various parts of the story over the years, but, you know, we were able to pitch it partially because we had earned a fair amount of trust. Um, and partially because we had a staff that was so diverse then. And so, um, smart about all of the potential pitfalls of that issue in that franchise 
that we were given a pretty long leash because I think Skipper, John Skipper and yeah. George Bodenheimer, um, who was actually president of ESPN at the time, and Ed Durso, who was in charge of HR and lots of people who were very nervous about it. They also trusted us because they looked at our staff and knew that we had smart people. And we also had people who were thinking about all of the ways in which you could screw that up, right? If you yeah. just focused it on women or if you just focused it on skinny, tall people, or if you right. just focused it on, um, you know, athletes with, uh, had classic definitions of beauty. And we, if you just focus it on, on abled athletes, right? Like yeah. we, you know, when I look back at that issue, what I'm mostly proud of, and some of it was later in the process than others, but mostly what I'm proud of is that we had full, you know, full figured athletes that we had many people of, of color across the the spectrum of what that means that we had, um, Sarah Reinertson, who, you know, one of our covers was a, was a, a, a triathlete who had a prosthetic leg. Like we really, um, we really made sure that we were as inclusive as I think we could be at the time. We, we didn't have somebody who was particularly, uh, a senior athlete, but we did the next year. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we were yeah. really, we were really thinking about that. And I'll tell you the, um, the, 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 the way I, I knew, you know, we were super nervous when that uh, issue came out. We didn't know what the reaction was going to be. We had budgeted for something like 60,000 subscription cancellations. Wow. Okay. Um, out, in, a, in a 2 million circulation magazine. And by the way, we ended up only having about 600. So it turned out to be really well received. And I knew it was going to be really well received. You know, there was a ton of press, but about three days after, and tell me if this story is boring or not, but about three no, days. No, I love it already. About three days after the issue came out, you know, we're just sitting in New York in our offices and we're getting a lot of media attention, but we have no idea what readers are thinking. And some readers get it on, you know, the, we used to close the magazine, I think on uh, on a Friday or maybe a Sunday, but, you know, some readers got it on Monday, some got it on Tuesday, some got it on yeah. Thursday. Yeah. But I got an email on, I think on a Wednesday, uh, and the subject line was your naked magazine. <laughs> no, no. And, and I was like, <laughs> and I was nervous. like, uh-oh. And my email yeah. wasn't readily available. So someone had to figure out how to get my email address. Yeah. And so it was an email from a, a mom in Atlanta who started off by saying that her husband was a uh, subscriber to the magazine, but she loved it because she could always, you know, leave the magazine out and in, in her den for her kids. She had like a 12-year-old daughter and I think a 15-year-old son. And she loved the magazine because it was cool, but also, um, respectable, et cetera. And so mm -hmm. I knew where this letter was going yeah, and yeah. she goes, and she goes, when this issue came in the mail, I saw it and I was like, I can't believe ESPN betrayed me by, you know, put doing a, doing sort of a pornographic magazine. She goes, uh -huh. but then I opened it up and I saw how you treated all the athletes and you, and then she referenced this, um, female shot putter that we had from yep. Texas who was, um, an African-American athlete and very large woman. Cause you are, uh, oh, you're, yeah. you're large if you're putting shots. And, um, she said that was the first time my, uh, I saw someone who looked very much like my daughter. Mm -hmm. And so I put the magazine on the table and opened it up to that issue, to that page. Right. So I went from thinking this woman was going to tell me, I can't believe ESPN betrayed me by doing a magazine with nude pictures in it to having this woman tell me that we treated an athlete that, you know, was an image of her daughter uh, older 
so well that she was, rather than hiding it from her children, she was going to open it up to that page and leave it, you know, on their den coffee table. And when I read that, I, I think I printed it out and I showed it to a few of my colleagues and I was like, this is going to work. Because if we're getting this kind of reaction from a the mom of a 12-year-old in Atlanta, yes. we're doing okay. That is so powerful to give young people, any person, a visual of what can be, you know, and just to show it as, you know, you aren't unable to achieve or do this or do that. Like this yeah. is, this is, you can be in ESPN, the magazine, you can achieve. And as a parent, that's the message you always try to give to your kids too, is that anything's available to you. And the fact that you were able to get that across to the body issue, I think is something that shouldn't be forgotten. Uh, as we talk through this conversation and, and we go through, you know, where we are in society right now, one of the big things we talk about a lot is mental health and of athletes. And we're wrapping up the Olympics now. And I can't stop thinking about what just transpired with Simone Biles. I've been thinking about it so much. Um, and, you know, clearly she is a world-beating GOAT athlete. And she took a step back for a myriad of reasons at this moment. And so many people got angry with her. And I just couldn't, I, I still can't fully wrap my head around it. It's trite to say we're a polarized nation right now. We all know that, right? But why do you think even at this point with somebody who's achieved so much, the fangs just come out? Is there something about, I, 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 again, I'm, I'm probably winding road with this question, but I just keep thinking about how in the last 10 years we've turned into, even in the sports world where everything is judgment, debate, everything's a reality show. Everything, it just feels like we're heading towards this world where everything has to be this myriad of hot takes and accusatory and in your face, like, where are we going here? Like, why are we so, why is this continuing to happen everywhere where there's so much judgment and, and anger almost out there? Like Simone Biles didn't do anything to you. Let her live her life. Like, why are we, why are we still doing this? Well, because we are still human. Uh, I'm going to have a little bit of a contrary take on this, which is that I don't think the nature of the sports fan, either in America or in the world, is much different now than it was 100 years ago. I just think we get more windows into the minds of people, right? Like, believe me, if you go back and you watch what was said, what was written to letters of the editor, what was said on talk radio, wasn't sports radio then, but talk radio. Yeah. Uh, about Muhammad Ali, for example, yeah. when he decided not to go to Vietnam and he was, you know, without doubt, one of the greatest athletes anybody had ever seen and certainly the best boxer at the time. If you want to look at the vitriol that was thrown at him, um, I don't think I don't think things have changed at all. I think that's I think that's partially the function that sports serves. It's an outlet. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about what why people follow sports really at a at a almost an evo biological level, like you know, because you know, why I care that in your office there's a picture of Adam Vinatieri hold, you know, raising his arms in victory over uh, what I think was a game that the Patriots stole from the Rams because they. <laughs> How dare you! <laughs> uh, and once we and once the Rams realized that the Patriots had the Rams playbook and Warner went off the playbook, <laughs> they ended up. They couldn't stop them. They just ran out of time and caught up. Disproved, but that's fine. Um, but why do I care that much about it? I didn't, you know, I, I've since, you know, talked to Kurt Warner. I got the Carolina Panthers one here too, when he when he hit the one there. So that was, <laughs> does that one count? Um, <laughs> I got Carlton Fisk up here too. That, again, around, anyway. Exactly. So but why, do, why, do I, why do you or I care that much about these guys wearing Great laundry point. that, you know, 
And so we think a lot about that, but I think one of the reasons why sports matters and why we care so much about it is it's a way we signify ideals, like what we think about sportsmanship and effort and teamwork and camaraderie and discipline and all this stuff. So because it's a signifier for us, because it's a way that we get to have these discussions and tell ourselves what matters, people are therefore going to have these outsized opinions and strong feelings about it. So that's why sports work. So you can't sort of complain about people feeling heated or and passionate. And then the question is, well, but they certainly seem mean and they certainly seem to be, you know, so willing and so quick to say the nastiest things. Well, you know, I don't know about you, but I grew up with a lot, around a lot of humans. I didn't grow up in a cave. And I knew a lot of humans and some of them were very quick to say mean and nasty things. And the thing the internet does is put those people on display. Amplify people, everything. Right. Yeah. And yep. remember, uh, I used to do, I would frequently do a thing when I was editor-in-chief, which is that I, we would get emails or we'd get letters, and I would call the people up. I would find out who they were, you know, randomly, not at scale, because we would get thousands of letters, and I would just call people up, you know, who would say, I don't know if I can curse here, but... Uh, Go ahead, we, sure. We, you know, there, we, there's a very, there's a shorthand at, at for people who worked at ESPN the magazine when I did, which is wake up fuck boys because I once, <laughs> because somebody once wrote me a letter in which they were saying, wake up fuck boys, by the way. And I think it was like, you need to cover hockey more, but it was yeah. such oh, a, yeah. it was such a nasty comment. So I, <laughs> you know, so we called those people and they were just, they would just be stunned that somebody was calling them. And then they would be like the sweetest people. Well, I didn't really mean it. Yeah. I was just kind of, so, you know, the term I use, I don't, I didn't invent it is, is keyboard brave or keyboard warriors, yeah. right? People become very, willing to um, talk tough and to uh, show their ignorance masquerading as self-deluded expertise um, when they're just sitting in front of a keyboard or have their phone in their hand. What I'm mostly astounded by is the lack of humility, right? It's like the more you work in sports, the less likely you are to tell any serious world-class athlete anything other than like, wow, I can't believe you got here because you are, you know, you work in sports as long as I have and and I'm not as involved in sports, but I still deal with sports sometimes and deal with athletes. The more, the more that happens, uh, the, the longer you are, you are involved in the game or the games, the more you realize like these folks are just a different, they're playing an entirely different game than we are. Like, totally. and the idea that some yokel, uh, in any part of the world who whatever, however, they could be the best cardiac thoracic surgeon in the world. They know nothing about what it takes to compete um, at age, in, in almost any sport. And they certainly don't know what it's like to compete in your whatever third Olympics at an advanced Unreal. age for that sport when you are having, you know, by the way, golfers get the yips all the time and they, they have yep. a name for it. It's called the yips. So the, the twisties, Oh, the twi- let's talk about it. Uh, the yeah. twisty, the twisties are just a version of the, yips, of the except, yips, except it's happening in the air with your neck exposed and yeah. you lose your sense of place as to where you are in the, in, in the atmosphere relative to the ground. The idea, I don't know anybody, how they don't have the yips all the time. Right. Then the idea that people would think to sort of weigh in on that with their opinion about whether or not that, qualifies her as the greatest of all time to me is just astounding like i just watch this stuff and i'm like wow you are probably not even the best school teacher or plumber or investment banker on your floor right and you are wising up about you know simone biles decisions at the olympic games when every one of these people who got to the olympic games had to win national Yes. contests in yes. order to get there. I just think it's extraordinary. Like I mostly, I'm just like, 
wow, I, I think of myself as a confident, sometimes probably even overconfident person. And I, the last thing I would do is mouth off about this stuff in public. Well, and that's what gets me. That's what I think you've, you've articulated it better than I did of just that frustration of like that lack of appreciation for all that they had to go through and accomplish. And then understanding that they are human and that things might not go exactly as you want them to. Who do you think's most disappointed? Probably her, you know, like she's the one that put in the work, not you. And I think like it's something funny that I think about with my kids a lot is like, Every show, whether it's The Voice or American Idol or Shazam, all these different shows are judgment. They are saying, you know, you were okay here, you weren't great there. And now I feel like my kids see somebody singing at the mall and they're like, yeah, it was a little pitchy for me. And I'm like, you're 12, just say it. this is really cool, you know? Like, there's this spirit of judgment that I just can't get, I can't get past sometimes. Yeah, I mean, the, the truth, of course, is that, um, and Simone recognizes this, and so do most of those people on The Voice or America's Got Talent, which is that, and I have friends who have been on America's Got Talent, is that you recognize, like, okay, I'm putting myself out there and I have reasons for doing that and I'm going to get some benefit from it. And yeah. so for the most part, she didn't, you know, she remarked it as to the level of vitriol and the level of nastiness, but she also didn't back down and stayed, you know, continued talking and yeah. let out information, for example, about her aunt, um, you know, mm -hmm. dying, uh, a beloved aunt dying. She, she, she was in the game and, and I don't feel sorry for her in that way. I'm mostly, I don't feel sorry for the athletes because I think most of them are inured to this and they, and even if they're not, I think they have the discipline and the ability to self-talk to sort of get yeah. through it. And they have a big support system. And even if they're not, I think they can recover. They're not being shot and they're not being killed and they're right. not being locked up. I'm just at the, at the same time as I marvel and impressed by anything they've achieved, I'm just separately thinking like, who are all these people and where do they get that level of confidence? Because, it's unbelievable. Because yeah. I've been in yeah. sports journalism for 23 years and all I do is go, wow, wow, wow. Constant and, awe. and when people don't, win or can't make it or, you know, decide to jump into the pool instead of doing a, a dive as that one diver did on her last go. I'm yeah. just like, I just can't even imagine what's going on in your life, ma'am. Yep. And good for you for putting yourself out there. hundred percent. hundred percent. So dovetailing. But I, mean, I don't I, think it's any worse. I'm of the, I'm of the I, belief I, that we know more about the, our ids, right? That the internet lets us put our id out there without having any responsibility to self-edit. But well, I and think, Muhammad Ali is a great example. You're, you're exactly right. Can you imagine the internet during the period from 1966 to 1972 when America was, when there were explosions in America almost every yep. other day from people who were anti-war, when there were, mm -hmm. when there was two years of inner city looting and burning, when there were protests after protests after protests, what would the internet have looked at then? Yeah. I always tell people to, this is off topic, but whenever I get into these discussions about how bad things are now, I always tell people, you need to watch the Christmas episode from All in the Family, which is about draft dodging. And literally, it's a comedy. And literally, it's an hour-long comedy. And there's a 10-second there's a passage of screen time yeah. at the end of that show. And I don't tell people what it is, but I, I said, you watch that and you will understand where America was in 1972 yeah. or 1973. And it will make you rethink that we're things have not been as bad as they are right now. It's one moment by Carol O'Connor who played yeah. Archie Bunker. And when you see it, you're like, holy Moses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. And we all need perspective on this. Just sometimes it's so in your face now with social media and other yeah. ways to amplify your message. And sometimes Put it hits you down. and you're just like, 
but just stop. Just everybody take a breath. Like give your everybody some grace. Like just just back away sometimes. But anyway, we'll pivot a little bit. Back then in these areas that we're talking about, you know, 2009 and before, you know, smartphones weren't quite what they are now. Everybody had to tune into Sports Center to watch highlights, you know, or grab the newspaper or things like that. Sports content has gone through one of these like fundamental changes. Things just aren't the same anymore. When you think about sports consumption and the dramatic shift it's gone through, what content works nowadays still? Like, what is the way to get that sports content out to the audience in a way that they they want it and need it? Well, part of me would argue all of it because there's clearly just an insatiable appetite for um, sports and almost, and you know, everybody thought, there was a time, first of all, when the, the major sports brands didn't understand the power of social media. And then when they finally understood it, they didn't quickly enough embrace um, the technology. And then even when they started embracing the technology, there was this fear that we're going to get put out of business because the athletes are going to go direct or the leagues are going to go direct to, to consumers. And the truth of the matter is they did. And that works. And people yeah. have lots of relationships with their athletes on social media, but they still want curated sports content on top of that. So part of me thinks that it all works to some extent, but obviously if you look at the ratings numbers for sports center, which is one of the biggest brands mm-hmm. in sports history, yep. right? In the history of sports, ESPN might be one of the top two or three brands, but I got to tell you, sports center is also one of the top two or three brands oh, yeah. within, in the history of the sports. The hosts were our and, icons. And yeah. the rating, the ratings are down. Like, um, you know, the sports center is fine. It's just people aren't necessarily, you know, don't need to go to sports center to find for it. Yeah. to find the scores, and they don't even need to go to sports center to see what the national conversation is. Right? I remember right. when I was in college, USA Today started, and the best thing about USA Today for someone like me was it was a second way to see whether or not St. Louis sports teams mattered, other than waiting for Sports Illustrated to put a Cardinal or a Blue or um, a Missouri yep. Tiger. On their cover now, if Sports Illustrated, if the sports section, if the lead story of the sports section, you know, had something about the Blues or the Cardinals or the Arizona or the St. Louis Cardinals football Cardinals, then I was like, okay, we matter now. So that's what Sports Center was too for the longest time. Like, yep. do, you know, are they paying attention to my team's game? And so we don't need that anymore because there's a zillion ways to sort of understand what matters now, and and what matters has been redefined because what matters to who and when and why. So I think so. All the content can work if it's done well and if it's created for the audiences that actually want it, right? There's still like The Athletic, which, you know, we'll see whether or not it's a financial success. I'm mm-hmm. super impressed with what they've done. They, Me too. You know, their their model has them look at whether or not it's working city by city, whether or not you understand that from the outside. But inside, they're thinking a lot about St. Louis or Chicago or Los Angeles, yeah. you know, those markets. And some markets for them are already profitable and some markets are not. But what they're doing, you know, is basically creating in a certain way kind of the national again, you know, that old oh, yeah. that old national it. sports newspaper, but really creating local sports sections that are kind of linked so that you also get access to a national sports section. Like they're doing really good sort of daily coverage and and mm-hmm. very thoughtful projects and very thoughtful writing. And they've got some really good talent, whether or not it works or not economically, we'll see. But but that works because they also know who they're going for. They're they're going for serious sports fans who want, you know, yeah. who want to know, you know, I'm, you know, I'm in St. Louis and do I want to know, do I want to, I want to see a lot about my teams and I'm not going to see them in the, in 
in the local paper and I'm not, you know, and I can go digitally to a lot of, um, you know, to the, to the Post-Dispatch online or to the Arizona Republic online, et cetera. But the problem is they're not going to necessarily have the kind of in-depth sports coverage that sports pages used to have. And right. so they know who their audience is and they're targeting towards them. You know, ESPN understands its audiences for the most part and they're targeting towards them. So I think any kind of, lots of content can work. It just has to be, it has to be targeted and you can't try to be all things to all people. It's like the regional sports network model, but with the agility of digital, you know, and the depth of newspapers. That's that's really the mix that the the athletic has to some degree. It's like really zeroing in on the niche, but then also having that pace and speed of digital, but going deep like the newspapers always used to be able to do. Yeah, uh, and also bringing audience with them, right? Like, right. you know, you don't have to be an idiot to realize that when they hire people, they're hiring people that have pretty significant Twitter followings. Oh, that's for sure. So They've that, done a so good that, job of bringing in talent. For right, sure. so that those people will click on those stories and that some percentage of them will start to buy subscriptions, which is, yeah. you know, uh, again, like, you know, as a as a, as a a person who likes the who thinks content is better when people are paying for it directly rather than when people are selling their souls so that advertisers can reach them. I'm all, I'm all in favor of models in which subscriptions drive the, the success of the business, because I think there's, you know, that's more likely to, to, to have the kind of talent and and have the kind of quality of content that, that makes the world a better place. Yeah. So one of your many areas of expertise is in consumer behavior and I think back to my experience as a sports fan growing up in Boston. Um, I mean, we were on Sports Illustrated cover all the time, so I didn't have to wait for that. Sorry, I had to get that dig in there. Um, but I grew up being a Celtics fan. I loved Larry Bird. I loved Kevin McHale. I loved Robert Parrish, but I was a Celtics fan. I was a Red Sox fan. I was a Bruins fan, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? So you're grateful to my Cardinals for basically lying down on purpose in 2004 and giving the Red very Sox, kind of you. giving the Red Sox their first World Series in however long, so that we could shut up these Red Sox fans. <laughs> it was I, we, it was very altruistic of you. I appreciate we did it as a, we did it as a national service. Yeah, <laughs> it was a service exactly. I mean, when else is the most storied franchise in all of sports, the St. Louis Cardinals? They want to be part of the story. Going to lose four in a row like that? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> the most story. Okay. We'll talk about that off there. Well, major, um, <laughs> major, major league sports. I don't really count the junior circuit, meaning, right. you know, American league baseball. Of course. <laughs> if you're from St. Louis, what you really care about is the national league pennant. Then the exhibition series afterwards against the American league team is interesting, but not really what you care about. It's who wins the national league. You have a very confident way of handling a sweep. That's amazing. Um, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> go back to the question I was trying to get to, uh, Sorry. Today, no, no, no. I love it. It's great. The, today's sports fans seem to be more focused on the athlete. So they're more Steph Curry fans than there are Warriors fans. And there are more, you know, Mike Trout fans than there are Angels fans. And this is proven. This is like talked about and debated and whatever. Why do you think that change occurred? And do you think that helps or hurts the industry moving forward? Does it make more sense to really lean into this concept of the athletes are the stars and it's less about our team logo? Or is it more about like, like, is this good for the business moving forward? I guess I'll ask it that way. Okay. So first I have to go back to your setup for this question, which is that you described me as a, uh, having expertise or being an expert on consumer behavior. Yes. I'm a journalist and what I have is lay expertise. I've never done original research. Um, in a way that an academic has or anybody, you know, who's a professional researcher. What I do is I'm very good at reading studies and paying attention to experts and then being able to talk about them 
and write about them and lecture about them. How about so that, this? You're smarter than me at consumer behavior. Is that a better I'm, setup? <laughs> I'm just doing it because we're at a time where people go like, I've done my own research and I'm not right. going to get a vaccine. And the research is they've read things on the on the internet. Right, when, yep, I get when, you. When as opposed to doing actually real research, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm just, but I'm careful myself because I write books and I get, you know, I get hired to give lectures about subjects. And I'm very careful when I when I begin to lecture, I'm, I always say like, I'm not the expert, I'm good at, making the expert more understandable to you. Yeah, that's great. So I've thought a lot about what you're asking. And I think, look, first of all, anything that makes us less tribal these days is good. So the fact that I'm not as concerned about the tribe I belong to, which sports fan, you know, which sports team am I willing to kill for or which um, or which city do I sort of think like is somehow better than any other city because my parents randomly gave birth to me there. Um, anything that makes us less tribal is not a bad thing. And I think in general, again, to the extent that, you know, going back to what we talked about a lot at ESPN, which was why people are sports fans and that what we are looking for is ways to identify ideals of living and ideals of behavior and ideals of excellence. I think the, um, the kind of shift from not caring as much about um, teams where the real uh, masters on those teams are often the general manager or the coach and caring more because, and I don't necessarily care about a team as much where the player that I'm rooting for can be traded the next year and instead focusing on individuals who have demonstrated excellence. I think that makes a natural kind of sense for where we are in our development as a species, you know, kind of late stage um, human evolution, we are trying to understand the best ways we can survive and thrive as individuals. And so we look to individual athletes, individual performers, individual writers, individual talents, much more than we do to brands, which while important, are not necessarily um, connecting with us as much as the way I ought to be. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Um, in normal times, you have a background in, in, and you've written books on decision-making and you've yeah. obviously got a background in, you know, money and finance. Yeah. In normal times, kind of simplistically stating it, people spend their money on necessities and discretionary items, right? Sports fit into that discretionary items kind of category. We don't need it. We, we like it. It's a nice entertainment form. Um, over the last year or two, with quarantine the way it was, a lot of new habits were formed. You know, I'm one who we started spending on groceries and bills and just kind of coming in closer with the family and, and not doing a lot of that discretionary spending and not going to sports events and kind of created that new habit where I'm kind of okay not spending as much on sports. As we get back to some sense of normalcy, and we don't know when that will ever happen, to be honest. I mean, Deloitte calculated that consumers saved about $1.6 trillion more than they would have saved had there been no pandemic. What does this all mean as far as decision-making goes for the future of sports? Are we going to have a couple-year delay where it takes people a while to build back new habits, get comfortable with their discretionary spending again, getting out there? Like I keep thinking everybody wants to just snap back and go back to reality, and yet there may be a lag effect here, or am I off base? Um, I think you're a little bit, I don't think you're off base. I actually think you said one thing and then summed up in a different way, which is, I think it's going to, <laughs> I, I have a tendency to do that. I think it's going to take a couple of years, but I think people are going to get mostly get back to business as usual for the, not completely, but for the simple reason that 
you know, we do, we, we, as a people, as peoples, we did those things that we did and mass millions of people going to sporting events, millions of people tuning into sporting events. You know, I'm just focusing on sports here. Millions of people doing all those things because we got a lot out of it. And I don't think that's going to disappear. I think those were satisfying basic human needs. And we, you know, going to movies, going out to eat, going to, going to music, to hear music live. Why do people ever go to hear music live? Because there's something about being in a group of people and hearing music live that's different than hearing the best recordings possible. So time has proven the value of all of these things people think might change radically. And I'm not so sure. Remember, radio's still not dead. Mm -hmm. Radio was going to be killed first by television or first by the movies. Then radio was going to be killed by television. Then radio was going to be killed by the VCR. And television was going to be killed by the VCR. And movies were going to be killed by the VCR. And then radio was going to be killed by the internet. Radio's still a vibrant industry. Not as vibrant, but it's still something that people do, right? Podcast basically is radio. It's yeah, just it radio. It's just radio that you are your own, you know, yep. program uh, programmer. And so um, I think that I'm not as quick to sort of say that these habits that were built up over long periods of time are going to go away completely. It doesn't mean that people are not going to be watching more esports. It doesn't mean that people won't be switching their allegiances or figuring out where to spend their money differently. But I don't necessarily think that uh, the model for Major League Baseball or the NFL or, um, you know, tennis is going to fall off the side of a table. Mm-hmm. I don't. But I think, like you said, it's going to take people a couple of years, first of all, until pe- until there's a sort of an understanding as to where we are from a health point of view, but also just as people, you know, start to think like, well, what what really matters to me and what doesn't matter to me? But I think, I think these are all gathering events. These are all... Um, you know, events for people to connect. And I don't think those are going to go away and to, and to, and to be part of, there's a loneliness epidemic in this country fomented by social media. And one of the things that sporting events do is bring you with people, right? So I don't think that these things are going to, are going to fall away dramatically, but I do think, as you said, that it's going to take a little bit of time for, for us to settle back to a new normal, which will probably be 15% different than the old normal, but not that much more different. Not that, yeah. And that's somewhat exemplified by the 65,000 people that crowded outside uh, game six of the NBA finals in Milwaukee that like everybody was still coming together and still banding together and wanting to be a part of that. And they're all crowding outside to be a part of it. And it did seem like this is a kind of scene you would have seen a couple of years prior and, and it's happening again. So maybe I'm the only one that's having a difficulty getting back nothing, to life. <laughs> nothing is more astounding to me um, than those those times when in the big four sports, the fans of a team that might clinch a title or actually just during a, during a, you know, a playoff a championship series when their team is away are sitting together in a stadium, just watching yeah. a big TV. It's unbelievable. And that's it. Like, in my, I, of course, I'm sure, as you know, that what's most recently in my mind about that was when the blues defeated the Bruins for the 2019 <laughs> Stanley Cup. I should have known this was coming. And, that did hurt you know, by the way. And, you know, in St. Louis, they're all sitting there watching, you know, a big screen just so they could be together when the Blues go to Boston and win an away game to clinch the Stanley Cup for the first time in their history in the NHL. Starting to sting a little bit. People want to be together. (laughs) I like how you wrapped that all in there. That was well done. I'm just going to let that lay as it is. Well, you're you're a gracious host. (laughs) I'm a gracious host. I'm a a good spirit here. So, Because, um, by the way, the most famous, arguably the most famous 
second most famous image in American sports after Bobby Muhammad Orr. Ali, after Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston, the second most famous image in American sport image is Bobby Orr Bobby flying Orr. through the air after beating the Blues in the Stanley Cup. I wasn't going to mention it, but since well, you, you brought can it mention up, it. <laughs> it was on my mind. As soon as you said the second most famous image, I said Bobby Orr. So I, I knew where you were headed. So I'm um, not going to feel bad about giving you some guff no, no, because no. you guys have owned I us. I enjoy it. <clears throat> I mean, it's... <laughs> I mean, you're in Boston. We just win championships every year. It's kind of tough. I mean, it gets a yeah. little bit old. That I, don't oh, know. I know. Just doesn't feel as special well, anymore. Tom Bra- well, Tom Brady did. And now it seems Tom Brady wins championships in Tampa. So <laughs> it's true. It's not quite the same, though. It was much the better worst, when he did it. The in worst Patriots. thing to ha- the best thing, the worst thing to happen to Tom Brady was Matt Castle, right? Yeah. Because you were thinking, like, wow, Matt wow, Castle won 11 games. It. Maybe it's, it's just him. about. And the worst thing to happen to Bill Belichick was Bruce Arians. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because now it, Brady's like, wow, I could have been having fun this whole time. Turn, well, it turns <laughs> out you're thinking like, maybe it wasn't Belichick. Maybe it's just like you have Tom Brady. Exactly. You're going to win half your, you know, you're going to win I could one have won the and actually had fun too. This is amazing. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, I know. It's, it's like the things we don't want to say out loud, but we all see and, and know. Um, yeah. So, okay, we'll, we'll pivot to Nick Saban a little bit then. Um, I don't know. I, I still have been so intrigued by names, image, and likeness, because I think that's a fundamental shift in how college sports is going to operate. I mean, the fact that college athletes can start to generate money off of their name, image, and likeness, I find really fascinating. And I think Nick Saban kind of nailed it recently at SEC Media Day when he said, I don't know what it's going to be like in the locker room, but it's going to be different because some guys are going to be making money and other guys aren't. And I think that really quantifies the difference and how a smart to say, I think names, image, and likeness is great. I think college athletes should be able to make money. I think they should be able to go play a concert if they play the guitar and be able to make some money from doing that. All for it. But I do think there's going to be a human aspect that starts to come out at this. These are young people, young men and women, student athletes, lots of pressure. Money comes into it. It changes everything. As we look back a year from now, how do you think this is all going to look and play out? I think it's fascinating. Uh, me too. I uh, I don't know what Nick Saban's politics are, but I think you could probably safely say that the majority of the people who are against, you know, kind of the empowerment of the college athlete are also people who are generally lean towards the conservative, little C conservative, not big C conservative, not, not yeah. Republican, but as much as people who think like things are better the way they are or the way they right, used to right. be. Right. And yep. I think it's, and those people often are super fa- big fans of capitalism as am I, but it's funny how the yeah. idea that there could be multiple people in a room or in a company or in a business or in an organization where some people are rich and some people are not. Well, that just is crazy. How's except, that going to work? Yeah. Except everywhere else in America. But <laughs> somehow exactly college is. football yeah. teams have to be communes. Yeah, like, exactly. What, what a bunch of what. And by the way, we Saban, keep our thumb on them. But, Saban, yeah. who's super smart um, yeah. and uh, who um, actually I think he's correct. He wasn't even weighing in. He was just saying it's going to be different. But yeah. one of the things I think it's gonna, we're going to find out is those guys that are making more money are making more money for the most part because they're way better. And sometimes those guys are the tickets for yeah. the other people in the room making a little bit more money themselves because either those teams are going to do well and they're going to get a little bit more time in the spotlight and get drafted or they're otherwise going to be able to sort of leverage their experience on Alabama or you know, or um, UCLA or Texas mm-hmm. or, my God, Boise State. They're going to be able to leverage that exposure that those higher paid athletes have gotten into post college football success themselves. And so they're those, as, as you know, athletes in general, especially uh, linemen in, in football are super smart and they're going to figure out that like, this is good for us too. Yeah. We're going to have to keep these guys from having swelled heads, 
We're right. pretty good at that anyway in locker rooms. Locker rooms have a lot of their own forms oh, of yeah. justice and social, hier- and social hierarchy c- controls. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be different. I think Saban's right. I think it's going to play out in sort of interesting ways. I'm sure there's going to be moments where it's going to get a little bit, not if not ugly, then awkward. But for the most part, like it's worked in America, capitalism. Right. right. <laughs> it, can, it can probably it work, be able to work in, college in locker rooms. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do think it's so cool, though. Like I keep saying this on this show. Like I think the thing that doesn't get talked I worked about at ESPN. enough. If you don't think Chris Berman made orders of magnitude more money than I did, I yeah. manage more people than Chris Berman did. Right. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I worked harder or not. The guy was a hardworking guy, but I guarantee you he made 10 or 20 times more money than me. Like, oh, yeah. I, w- I was able to deal with Chris Berman just fine. I didn't exactly. like, because Chris Berman got his good for him. He deserves it. I deserve what I got. That's America. That's America. That, exactly. Right. One of the things I think that is getting underreported in this whole, all this legislation too, is that I actually think it helps a lot of the smaller programs. I think it helps a lot of the softball teams and wrestlers and water polos who can start to build their own personal brand, get a social media following, bring additional eyes to their program. Like I do think that this can help out a lot of these smaller programs, if they go about it the right way, they start. I mean, if you think about the Harvard you baseball very, team, you are very smart. We're going to find, we're going to, we're, we're going to realize in a year and a half that all of a sudden we know I'm making this up. We know a lot about track and collegiate track yes. and field now because there's some really hunky male athlete who has somehow become like a celebrity because of TikTok and because Thank of, you. and then he starts getting leverage and somehow he's on a dog. And all of a sudden they want to broadcast their games on ESPN three or the Ocho. It's like, it's Correct. like they become we personalities. Even, we don't even, you know, as Jeff Goldblum said, it's like, you know, we don't know what's going to happen when all this is unleashed, but most of it will be good because what fundamentally is happening is a good thing. Right. People are being rewarded for their work product. Yes. And that's, what America, great. and that's what America is about. And it's, and we'll see how it plays out. There will of course be bumps in the road in the same way that like, you know, my dentist got the vaccine and had his heart, um, had, a, had his heart uh, kind of swell up. And I said to him, oh my God, do you regret getting the vaccine? And he, uh, the COVID vaccine, he goes, of course not. I'm a scientist. Like a hundred million people get a vaccine. A few hundred are going to have their heart right. swell up. I wish it wouldn't right. have been me, but like everybody needs to get the vaccine, right? And so yep. when we start paying college athletes or college athletes are allowed to make money, yes. sure, there's going to be some rough spots. That's okay. That doesn't mean that it's not a fundamentally a good thing. And of course it's a fundamentally good thing because any other 19-year-old in the world who's working and making money for a large organization, we would expect to be compensated. Uh, fantastic. Love it. I, I get excited by these like fundamental sea change moments. Like I think this is a huge landmark moment and it's probably not getting enough conversation. I think it's it's so cool. It's so fun to watch this play out. But we're also talking about things like NFTs and players as angel investors and equity deals now as part of, I mean, it's super exciting. It feels like there's a lot of cool things going on right now. I'm not asking you to predict the future, but is there anything you see that's happening over the, and we'll finish up with this because you've already given me so much of your time. And I know you've got some other things to do today. I don't want to, I'm enjoying this conversation so much. I keep going, but I want to be respectful as well. But are there certain new emerging frontiers? I mean, whether it's sports betting or some other thing that you just think is the, is the thing to really keep an eye on as we move forward? I mean, look, I'm uh, one of my close friends and a former colleague is Chad Millman, who took over for me as editor-in-chief of the magazine and became editor-in-chief of ESPN.com. And then he started the Action Network, which just got recently sold. And that's at the forefront of um, of sports betting. And I think right now that is the area to watch. I think yeah. it's going to be, um, you know, we are not yet... Um, where Europe is in terms of 
betting being a part of the fan experience in the way that it is in Europe. And I think that's bound to happen in America over the next few years as more states legalize sports gambling, et cetera. I think the Arizona Cardinals are now going to have a sports book in their yeah, stadium, I believe. That. So so the short term is I think you need to pay attention to, you know, the action's going to be, no pun intended, hmm. um, in sports gambling. And that's just going to play out in ways where I think it's going to become more it's going to become easier for people to bet lightly on sports in a way that probably enhances the fun of it. Right. Um, there's going to be problems with some people are going to have a, you know, some people have gambling problems and that's going to cause issues. There's going to be betting scandals undeniably because humans yeah. are humans and some small percentage of the people who control outcomes of games are going to do stupid things. And, but, but I think sports betting is where there's going to be short-term kind of change and interesting things to watch in the long term, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see, Everybody talks about some at some point the leagues are going to figure out how to basically cut out the intermediaries, right? But when you yeah. watch the league's own coverage of their of their sports, it's good but not great, and it's good but not great, not because the people who work at the NFL Network or at MLB.com aren't super talented, but because by definition, when you're writing about yourself, you're an in-house organ. When you're producing mm-hmm. your own television you're an in-house television network. And that's always going to be, I think, a little bit of a regulator or what do they call those? A restrictor plate in NASCAR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On your, I'm just so happy, proud of myself that I made a NASCAR reference. <laughs> uh, that R- Ryan McGee, the greatest NASCAR journalist I've ever met, is going to be so happy that I- that So I, proud. I, I use restrictor plate moment. correctly. Um, <laughs> but I think that's always going to be put a limitation on. So I think there's going to be mediators, you know, ESPNs and and- Amazons and NBC, the mediators could be different, the intermediators, but I, the uh, intermediaries, but I think that's going to stay the same. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's always, you know, I think esports is going to become just a bigger and bigger deal um, because I think there's just, you know, people are used to watching screens and used to watching other people doing things on screens now in a way that they weren't (laughs) 25 or 30 years ago as much. And I think like those, you know, that's going to become a bigger and bigger deal. Um, Maybe not for someone in my age demographic, but I think for lots of, lots of people with the future of sports, that's just going to be a thing. Um, and, you know, we, at the, at the magazine, we did a millennial issue uh, in which we forecast, like, I think the next, you know, a thousand years in sports. And one of the things we did was we had Dave Eggers, who was the guy uh, who came up with, you know, uh, the um, uh, Might magazine, and he's a novelist now, and he, uh, heartbreaking work of staggering genius. He's like this really talented person. We had him imagine the future of sports with a television writer named Zev Barrow. And they came up with a game called Netball. It was played on the moon. It had to do, there was a goat involved, a real goat, not the greatest of all time. Gravity came into play. So I'm always making a bet. It was a joke, but I'm always making a bet that Netball is the future of sports. It's going to take off. It's huge. And there is actually a sport called Netball that's different. Um, But I'm talking about the ESPN, the magazine, circa 2000s version of Netball. That's the future of sports. There but, it is, right there. Would, we bo- we figured it out. Well, you figured it out. I just said, let's yeah. see what happened. But I wouldn't bet on it. And betting is going to be much more the short term future of sports. Oh, we see. Brought that full circle there. That was impressive. <laughs> You're a pro, <laughs> Gary. This was awesome. Thank you so much for jumping on, sharing a lot of your insight. And oh the my world. god, super fun to have this conversation. Thank you to Gary for coming on the show. Like my strategy with Gary was, let's just ask really smart questions that were that were you know, curious that I'm curious about that. I want to know the answers to, and let's get him talking because he is, it's funny, you know, you might see this in some of our, our videos that we create and put out there for our publication. Um, 
Gary, as I was asking questions, was super focused. Like, I'm always looking for body language from people. And you get some sort of feedback. They nod their head. They kind of acknowledge. Gary was like this laser focus where he just had this very intense look about him, which is almost intimidating for me asking questions because I'm like, am I asking a bad question right now? There's a little bit of hesitation in my voice. Like, maybe I'm not making sense. Um, but Gary was amazing. And I think his perspective on so much of this was was really, really important and opened my eyes to a lot of different concepts too. And maybe I had a different opinion on, but he, uh, he made me think a little differently. And I hope he did the same for you. Thank you for listening, everybody. We've got amazing guests lined up for the future. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. We want to continue to build our audience. I'm telling you people, we're bringing great audiences, great, great guests to the forefront. So don't miss an episode. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. All right, everybody. Talk to you soon.